Our sermon this morning is from uh, Luke chapter 1, as I already mentioned, verses 46 through 55. The words will be on the screen if you uh, would like to follow them there. If you don't have a Bible, would like to actually be looking at uh, ink on paper. There are Bibles underneath the seat in front of you, the little black uh, hardback books there. There should be some that you could reach for. But Luke 1, 46 to 55, and I've just titled this message, The Good News According to Mary. Would you stand in honor of the reading of God's word and just give a special attention to his voice in it? And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. For he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has set away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we do thank you, as always, for your word, that we can open it with the expectation that you have something to say to us in it. It is true and it is living. It is active, able to the cut to the very center of our being, discern the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. So Lord, we open ourselves that you might open us even further, Lord, to show us yourself, show us ourselves and show us our savior and how you would have us respond. And so we ask that you would speak your word by your spirit through your servant to your people for your glory and our good. God, would you move me out of the way and use my voice as your instrument for your good purposes today in Christ's name. Amen. And you may be seated. Well, Mary features prominently in our Advent and Christmas um, celebrations if not any other time of the year in uh, Protestant circles. She doesn't always get a lot of airtime otherwise, but in the Advent and Christmas season, she features pretty prominently, and partly because uh, while we're in a season of expecting the Messiah, she was expecting in a whole different way, right? She was expecting not only a Savior, but a baby, and she was probably ready when the time came for the baby to come on out, like every other pregnant mother was. But the Bible actually doesn't tell us much about Mary, as as much uh, sort of airtime, as I say, as she gets this time of year, and um, as much as we sort of develop around um, her, the Bible actually doesn't teach us much about Mary. In fact, I would say notably, it does not teach about her immaculate conception or her perpetual virginity or her assumption into heaven. Those teachings were uh, developed later in the life of the uh, Catholic Church and have become you know, part of the teaching around Mary and devotion to Mary in those circles. Those you don't find, though, in the scriptures. There's actually very little there about her. But what we do know from the Bible is that she was a woman, 
that she was probably quite young. That is not an absolute certainty, but most scholars think, given uh, the cultural um, norms or whatever, that, that uh, being a, a virgin betrothed to a man, that she's a young woman, probably in the 12 to 16-year-old range. But again, we, we, don't, we don't know any of that, absolutely. But we do know that she was poor. And we know that because in Luke chapter 2, toward the end of Luke 2, where she goes up to the temple to present Jesus and to offer a sacrifice for her purification according to the law of Moses in Leviticus chapter 12, it says there she offered essentially the offering of a poor person. The the ordinary offering was a lamb and either uh, a pigeon or a turtle dove. But if the person could not afford a lamb, she could give two pigeons or two turtle doves. And that was the offering that it says Mary brought, the offering of a poor person. I think that's quite intentional on Luke's part, knowing Luke's gospel and the themes that are embedded in it, um, but also that his, his purpose, a part of his purpose in opening his gospel is to highlight the very, very lowly station that Jesus was born into. And when God sent a Savior into the world, he started at the very bottom. As a, as a, not only a baby, but of very, of a family of very meager means. And the reason, uh, I guess, that I point that out this morning is that as a poor young woman in that part of the world and at that time in history, she was not a person of significance. Really being either a woman or young or poor, she just didn't have much of a voice that, that, that was just her station in life, in other words. But then an angel appeared to her and made her significant in a way that she was not inherently significant or a way that no one uh, previously had regarded her. The angel told her that she had found favor with God, that she was going to conceive a son by the Holy Spirit and call his name Jesus, that he would be great and sit on the throne of David forever and he would be the son of the most high God. That's a lot to digest in one appearance of an angel, right? I mean, it'd be hard enough just to get over the fact that an angel had appeared before you. But, uh, but then that's a lot to digest. The angel also told her her cousin Elizabeth was going to have a baby. Her, Elizabeth was an old woman. You remember we visited that last week. We were kind of actually ahead. Uh, the next passage in the text about the birth of John the Baptist to, to Zechariah and Elizabeth. But um, they weren't expecting her to get They wanted a baby, but they didn't have one because she was not able to bear a child. And so she was advanced in age. But the angel told uh, Mary that Elizabeth was pregnant. And so Mary, having received this news, hurried to Elizabeth's house and then saw that indeed Elizabeth was pregnant. And then Elizabeth basically prophesied to Mary in a variety of ways. The the baby uh, uh, leapt in the mother's womb and there were just all kinds of confirmation for Mary in that visit that what the angel said was true. And surely that's part of the reason she hastened to her cousin's house was to validate if, if, if what he said about Elizabeth is true, then that's all the more reason I can believe that what he's just told me about myself is true and the child I'm going to bear. Everything he told her was true. 
So this poor young woman who had no reason to hope for a bright future had been chosen by God to be the mother of the most important person that ever lived. Now that's actually more staggering than, than it staggers us most of the time. We're not, we're not staggered by that anymore in the way that probably we ought to be. Because it's a familiar story. But this woman of, of no standing, no status from a nowhere town, of no reputation in particular, is chosen by God to be the mother, not only to, not only to carry her, not only to give birth to her, but to change his diapers Love him, teach him, nurture him, be a mother to him, the, the most important man who ever lived. And so, at discovery, having received this word from the angel and, and validating it uh, through her visit with Elizabeth, she sings here, my soul magnifies the Lord. It's just like a joy just erupts from, out, uh, from the innermost part of her being, like a, a, just a geyser of praise. A gush of it. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. And she proceeds with this song of good news. And, the, and, it, and, and it sort of boils down to really uh, two points or really one two-part statement, I guess. And that is the good news, according to Mary, that is, that God lifts up the lowly and brings down the self-exalted. That's the essence of the good news that she reports there is that God lifts up the lowly and brings down the self-exalted. And so let's look uh, at the text under those headings. First, that, he, that God lifts up the lowly. And of course, she's first struck by how this is true of her personally. She, she mentions how it's true more generally. But she's experienced it personally. Again, Mary's not a person of significance in her culture. Almost nobody in her life would look up to her. Uh, there are probably plenty of people who would have looked down upon her, but nobody who would have looked up to her. And by the way, in talking about these kind of things, I don't want to project 21st century American notions of these things either in terms of poverty or social status or whatever onto the past, but it's just to say, this is real life for a girl like Mary. Nobody looked up to her. Uh, some people may have looked down, but probably most people just didn't look at her at all. She didn't, there was no, nothing about her that would cause people to really take notice of her or pay attention to her. That was just her station in life. Many of us have had the experience of walking along the street or at a shopping center, that sort of thing, seeing someone who maybe appeared to be homeless, might have even been holding a sign of some sort, but, it, but it, maybe somebody who just had that appearance and we just pass by without even looking at the person. And, and uh, I'm not making any sort of statement or judgment about whether or not at, in any given circumstance, whether that's the wise thing to do or not. Maybe it is. My point is just to say we've had that experience, probably most of us. That's common, a common experience to many of us. Driving by the intersection, walking past somebody on the street, the sidewalk, the shopping center or whatever, and just passing by without even looking because uh, of their uh, low status, their sort of poor station in life and, uh, and probably their desire to maybe ask for money if, uh, if they got our attention. 
Um, now, my point there is to, is to help us try to imagine from the other person's perspective. What would it be like when your ordinary experience is for one person after another to just pass by and not even look at you? Like you, you go through life and your ordinary experience is just being unnoticed. And in some ways, you know, maybe, maybe even verbally people would scoff and scorn and, and there's some of that belittling and demeaning that comes with it too that even sets that person's expectation of what's implied when people don't look at them. But imagine how that might form a person and their own sense of self-worth Right, their own sense of dignity and value and so on. Well, uh, again, I would say maybe in, a, in an analogous sort of way, a very different kind of way, but that that may have been Mary's experience as a woman, as a, as a young woman who was poor, that probably in lots of places in life, and she just is unnoticed. She, she goes through life without anybody having any special regard for her. She'd be mostly overlooked or unnoticed just because her station in life. But then after the angel appeared to her, she erupted with this overflowing joy because look at what it says in verse 48. He has looked on the humble estate of his servant. Now, I love this verse and I probably can't communicate it to you effectively enough uh, to get the significance of that in Mary's heart. God looked upon me. Nobody looks upon me. Nobody notices me. And again, I'm not suggesting that in some uh, 21st century uh, kind of way that she is particularly despairing about her station in life or anything like that. But, but she mentions the very first reason she erupts with joy is that that he has looked on my humble estate. He has noticed me. He has given special regard to me. And nobody has any regard for Mary. And this, this is life-changing for her. Now all the generations will call me blessed. And she, she really can't even fathom all that's going to follow from that. But God had looked upon her lowly station. And so she, she understands that in a personal way. In other words, that God lifts up the lowly. She's just experienced it. And this, it, there is something in there that's at the very heart of the gospel. The good news, according to Mary... Uh, is, it harmonizes well with the good news according to everybody else who has told it. And that is good news about what God has done. And if you look down the rest of this song, you'll see he, his, or him mentioned 16 times. It's all about him. Good news of what he has done. That he initiated this and he reached down to the lowliest of people. There is nobody who could claim credit for what was going to come of the life of Jesus beginning with his parents because he didn't, he didn't place Jesus into a royal family, into a wealthy family, to a family of any sort of status or privilege, but to the lowliest of stations because this is all about what he has done and what he was going to do. 
that he reaches down to the lowly and he lifts up the lowly. And that is good news to the lowly. Here's the good news in case you didn't know it. All of you are lowly. And so am I. And that's really part of the, the call of the gospel is for us to get in touch with our lowliness. Because God lifts up the lowly. The second thing is God brings down the self-exalted. God is holy and perfect in justice. In fact, we talked last week in the Song of Zechariah about his perfection in justice and mercy. But he's perfect in justice. And that is good news, not bad news. This is the paradigm shift we need sometimes in relation to the gospel because we think about God's justice and his judgment being the bad. Let me tell you some bad news and the good news. The bad news is God is just. No, that's not bad news. That's good news. God will not allow evil to go unpunished. And that's good news. And every one of us thinks that way in other uh, categories of our life. And sometimes we lose touch with it when we're thinking about God and his justice. And let me illustrate it. In this way, you know, if you're uh, tuned in at all to the news, there's been a sharp increase in crime in some major U.S. cities, including a wave of what's called smash and grab robberies, where you have this coordinated mob descending on a particular business and just smashing up the place and stealing uh, merchandise and absconding with it. And uh, many times, in particular, particularly in California, this is being reported, if they're caught and arrested, they're released because the district attorney is not going to press charges. It has, I don't even know why. It's not a good reason as far as I'm concerned. But anyway, but that, that's, the, that's, the, that's what's really happening um, in places in California now. Where, and, and, and so law enforcement officers, in some cases, are, are catching people. In other cases, they can't find them, but they're catching them, arresting them, and then they're being released again. Well, that emboldens criminals. It demoralizes law enforcement. And it exasperates people who live in those communities. I mean, let's try to put ourselves in that situation for just a minute. It wouldn't take long at all before we're ready for that to come to an end. Right, somebody needs to stop this. You can't just let people go around breaking into places, smashing them up, stealing people's stuff. Like everybody has a sense of that and they expect law enforcement to enforce the law and they expect the justice system to render justice. Right? That's, that's what that, there is something inside of any person, and especially those living in those communities, who'd be utterly exasperated by the fact that evil is going unpunished. Now, imagine how much more exasperating would it be? Not that those in power would not render justice on evil. But if those in power were the perpetrators of the evil. Not only the evil is going unpunished, but it's going unpunished because those who have the power to do something about it are the ones perpetrating the evil in the first place. Where does a person go in that situation? Who do you call? You can't call 911. You can't appeal to the courts, right? 
And where there's real authoritarianism, you can't, you know, appeal to the next election because there is no such thing. Absolutely exasperating and helpless. Well, that's the sort of abuse of power and perversion of justice that God opposes. And really, some that was uh, certainly at work, we know was at work in the first century during, during the time of Jesus. But look at what he says in verses 51 through 53 about how he brings down the self-exalted, as I've termed it. It says he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts and brought down the mighty from their thrones. And then at the end of verse 53, the rich he has sent away empty. All of the good things he said that, that, that Mary says that God does and has done for the lowly and the humble and the poor and so on, that the, the, the reverse of that is true and that he brings down those who are proud and mighty and rich. Because they, they, they abuse that power, you know, use people to obtain power and wealth and then use their power to oppress people in order to uh, hold on to power and even attain more of it. But it does need to be said, I think, um, because if you, if you didn't have any other Bible other than these verses and you read that, you might think that's a rather absolute statement of judgment against people of power and wealth because it's just spoken real generally there. Um, and so it does need to be said that it is not inherently evil to be rich and powerful. It, it does need to be said, which is, it, it, I mean, what a shame that that needs to be said in, uh, in the 21st century, but it does need to be said. It's not inherently evil to be rich and powerful. The Bible has far too many um, examples that would, would contradict that. I mean, uh, the, the example of godly people who were rich and powerful. And in many cases, maybe it's most cases, it's said explicitly that they were rich and powerful because God made them so. Because God gave them that favor. I mean, Abraham, Moses, David, Solomon, Job, <laughs> and, and, and right on into different characters in the, in the New Testament who, who God used in a variety of ways uh, to advance the gospel. There's just too many examples of godly people who are rich and powerful to universalize about that, that it's somehow inherently evil. Now, I say that needs to be mentioned because there is a very concerted effort afoot in our day and age to really demonize or vilify people of wealth and power simply because they're wealthy and powerful. Have you noticed this or am I, is it just me? Okay. I mean, there are people who really, really will just uh, demonize people because they're wealthy or, or powerful. And uh, that, what that requires, in order to sort of keep that fueled, uh, they have to supply uh, or, or sort of inspire in people a steady supply of ingratitude and envy. This is really what it is. Ingratitude and envy, and there's this sort of manufactured outrage. It's like there's this factory, um, you know, and it's... It's particularly in uh, academia and uh, in the media, I suppose, this sort of factory just producing outrage 
out of ingratitude and, uh, and envy. And ironically, the strategy ultimately there, if, if, the, the, if the wealthy and the powerful people are the evil people, the strategy would be that, that some people with power would take power from other people and then it would just flow back to the people who already have power. That's how that works, by the way. That's how that works. And it, and it, is, it is pertinent right here to uh, this very passage and why this statement could even may, be made so generally. But, uh, but I, I just want to underscore this fact that it, um, there, there is no scenario where you have people who, by coercion and power, are going to, uh, are going to take power and then for generations to follow, that'll just be, they'll, they'll just, nobody will be selfish about the accumulation of power and wealth anymore. No, it, it, one, one group of people takes it from another group of people and accumulates it again for themselves. And that's the, the irony in that whole thing about villainizing, uh, uh, vilifying or demonizing the powerful is what ultimately, if the people have their way, the, the strategy would be just to for one group of powerful people to take it from another. Now, uh, enough of a, an aside and a soapbox rant there. But that whole, that whole approach, that whole mindset is a perversion of justice of another kind. That's really what needed to be uh, said here. Is that while, while Mary is rejoicing that God has sent a savior who is going to render justice against evil. And specifically those who are, um, make evil use of their power and wealth and privilege. That for, for, for those who would, um, would just categorically say people of wealth and power are evil and do whatever they're going to do in response to that, that itself is a perversion of justice just on the other side of the ledger. I hope any of that just made sense. But whether... It, it, People are inclined. This is, this is really the, the truth that underlies all of that. It is the tendency of man to seek wealth and power and having acquired it to become self-sufficient and then ignorant of our need for God and then outright opposed to God. This is, the, this is the trajectory that man uh, follows repeatedly. To become self-sufficient, right? Accumulate enough power and, and wealth so that you feel self-sufficient, so you don't need God, and then gets to the point where if God stands in the way of holding on to wealth and power, men will oppose him outright. It is, it is just the tendency of, uh, of fallen mankind. And so, God brings down those who are self-exalted and he exalts those who are humble. And the gospel calls us to pursue humility, not just to accept it. Right? Not just to, not just to go along with it because it's just part of the uh, the cards you're dealt, but, but it calls us to a life of humility. 
making more of others and less than ourselves. Again, there's so many places in the Bible that speak to this, I couldn't even, uh, couldn't even name them all, couldn't read them all. But, but, and, and let me try to connect the dots here. Part of the significance of this, the importance of this, is because we as fallen human beings are so inclined by our sinful nature toward self-exaltation of one sort or another. Left to ourselves, we will gravitate down that path all the time. Become more and more proud, become more and more self-serving, more and more self-gratifying. That's, that's our default setting. And the, one of the um, defenses against that, if you will, or the positive responses of that is to, is to journey in the other direction pursuing humility. So, for example, uh, Jesus said in Matthew 23, 12, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. 1 Peter 5 uh, the last part of verse 5 through verse 7, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. It says that same thing in James 4, by the way. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time, he might exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Part of the problem of human beings is we don't particularly want to wait for God to exalt us if we can do it ourselves. And then Luke chapter 6, verses 20 through 22, uh, in the Beatitudes, his rendering of that, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are those who lack because they need God and they know they need him. It is why I said at the beginning, one of the things we need and one of the things this uh, song of Mary in this passage, in this message even, would urge us toward is staying in touch with our lowliness. That as soon as we don't think we're lowly, it's time to get lowly. It's time to pursue humility and make much of others and less of yourself. To give rather than to take. It, it, is, it is to sort of work the opposite direction of so many of our uh, natural and sinful tendencies that would ultimately lead us, ultimately lead us to resist God himself in pursuit of our own desires. And so we're thankful, um, even though the Bible, uh, again, has very little to, to say to us about Mary, we could be thankful for this message of overflowing joy out of her heart, of the, the good news of the gospel that at, that at its heart reminds us that a good and gracious and sovereign Lord condescends just by his grace to meet the lowly in low places and to lift them up. And that is a part of that. He will render justice in a way that only a perfect judge can rightly do. And so we can leave that part to him 
We must because he told us to. Well, let's close in prayer. God, we're always thankful for good news. We're always thankful, Lord, for the reminder that the gospel is good news about what you have done, not good advice about what we should do. It's not uh, a handbook of self-help, suggestions. But it's good news about what you have done and the invitation to walk in the way that you've provided through that good work of Jesus on the cross and through his resurrection. And so Lord, I pray even out of this passage today that you would maybe just reveal to our hearts places where we're a little too self-exalted, where we think too much of ourselves or desire to be thought of too highly by others. All of those natural inclinations, Lord, would you fill us with your spirit that we might turn upside down the ways of the world and to live the way that Jesus called us with the full expectation that there is fullness of joy to be found there, real meaning in our lives, transformation in our innermost being, and eternity awaiting us with Jesus himself. Lord, would you direct each one of us to respond and to proceed as you would have us. In Christ's name, amen.